In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Thank you, O Lord, for this day. And grant us, O Lord, your peace, and teach us, O Lord, to follow you and to obey your will. During this hour, O God, protect us and open our minds and our hearts to yourself and help us to learn, O Lord, your truth and to live it out in our daily lives. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, God willing, today we're going to continue uh, and have another uh, Q&A session. Um, if you uh, would like to submit any questions for any upcoming sessions, uh, you can do so uh, using the, the link that is on the screen. Um, uh, and uh, we, we can, we'll get to it um, in, a, in a future uh, session, God willing. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. First question is, last Tuesday, your reverence uh, were asked a question about how to define different types of maturity. When you defined emotional maturity, a part of your definition was that an emotionally mature person is a person who doesn't have extreme reactions of happiness uh, or sadness to situations, if I understood correctly. Now, an extreme negative reaction to stressful situation is something that I can imagine and understand why it would be bad and immature. But how would an extreme reaction to happy situations look like and why would it be considered immature or harmful? So let me give you an example of what I mean, okay? Sometimes we receive good news, okay? And, and, and that good news, we receive it and we blow it out of proportion, right? We, we receive some good news that is good and from that piece of information, we extrapolate and make assumptions and, and get overly excited and thinking that something is so wonderful when actually, um, you know, maybe that's causing us to be a little bit biased uh, and, uh, and blinded as to what's actually happening. Like, like here's an example. Let's say um, we get a job offer from something, you know, a job that uh, we were interested in, okay? And we become so happy, so happy that I got this job offer. Um, and let's say, uh, this job requires a lot of things from you. For instance, I have to move to another city. I have to work very long hours. Um, maybe the salary isn't that good. Maybe um, I'm in a city that uh, is in a place that uh, doesn't have a church nearby or whatever. But because I really have my heart set on this particular job, maybe I want this position or this company or whatever, I become very, very excited uh, about it. Um, and kind of it blinds me to being able to make a rational choice and consider all of my, all of the the factors that maybe this isn't really uh, as good as as I think it is, you know, or let's say somebody falls in love with another person and they're so, so happy. Okay. And that happiness, again, blinds them into thinking that this person um, is, would be a good partner for them to have in their life. But if you look objectively at this person, maybe, you know, they're not a church going person at all. Maybe they have a lot of vices uh, that's going to cause problem in the marriage um, but this person, because they're so overly happy and excited about this prospect, they don't listen to advice from other people. They don't see objectively like what's actually happening and so on. Right. Um, so being being emotionally mature means that we are not overly joyful. OK. And we're not overly sad either. Right. We have like a balance in between. Right. Sorry, I don't I don't want to use the word joyful. 
like overly happy. I want to say more overly happy because joy is something that comes from the Lord and there is no limit to the joy that we have in the Lord. But but happiness is something that happened that's based on our current situation, based on the circumstances of our life. And sometimes we, we react too quickly or too, too strongly um, to those situations, whether they be positive or negative. Okay. So, you know, I, I'm always reminded of this verse in Jeremiah 79 that says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Right? Who can know it? You know, the heart and the emotions are a very, very powerful thing. And when they are a positive, like when when they are when they line up with the truth, when they line up with what is good, it can make life very enjoyable. Because, like, let's say there is something you know good that I need to do. When I'm motivated to do that, when my heart is in it, then it makes my work easy. It makes it makes it enjoyable. Like I can I can meet my responsibilities and do the right thing with ease, without burden, because my emotions are are motivating, are pushing me to do the right thing. Okay, because I feel passion, I feel zeal about the thing that I should be doing, and I have a lot of energy to do it, right? But the same heart that can make us zealous and passionate toward what is good, it can also make us zealous and passionate toward what is bad, toward what is not good, okay? Because when when instead of giving me positive emotions, uh, when I'm doing the right thing, actually maybe my heart gives me negative emotions, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe I, I struggle so much to pray because every time I think of the prospect of prayer, I have a lot of negative emotions. I, I feel lazy. I feel tired. I don't feel energetic. I don't feel motivated. Those are negative emotions, right? So in the one case, the motivations, are the, the, the emotions were a motivator, whereas in this case, the emotions are a hindrance, okay? So when we speak about an emotionally mature person, okay, an emotionally mature person takes what is good and leaves what is bad, right? When my heart is motivating me, I use it. When my heart is motivating me to do the right thing, I capitalize on it. I, I, I use that energy for what is good. But at the same time, when my heart is deceiving me or when my heart is keeping me from doing what is right, I remember this verse in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it, Right? Just because my emotions are not telling me that a particular thing is good or is not motivating me doesn't mean that that's actually not good, right? I have to, the emotions are part of the picture, you know? Like there's a, there's a, there's a, like there's each of these parts, right? In me, like there's the emotion, there's the mind, right? Um, and each one has strengths and weaknesses, okay? So I have to take what is good out of each of these and build like an image and build like a, like a, uh, an understanding, a way of making decisions, taking input from the mind, taking input from the heart and, and understand how I should behave, how I should react, what decisions I should make and so on. Not simply trusting only one, because actually if you trust only the mind and you forget the emotions altogether, then maybe you become like a calculating person, like all you are is like, like robotic almost in action without, able, without being able to engage with other people effectively because we cannot empathize with them. We cannot understand them. We don't know how they're feeling. And so if, if, if we go with that route as well, only focusing on the mind, right, then we can have the same problem, right? We have the same issues. I'm only, I'm only accept. So we, we take what is good from the mind. We take what is good from the heart, right? And we, and we build together like a way of us to perceive and understand the world and to understand ourselves that is right and accurate and effective. 
not simply basing everything on one, okay? So, so this idea of emotional maturity, okay, means that I don't just trust the heart, right? My heart's telling me that the things that's happening is the, is, is, you know, is the most amazing thing ever that's happened in the entire world, okay? Well, maybe I should temper that a little bit. Actually, that's how children operate, right? Like for, for, for a child, you give them any piece of good information and they're like jumping off the walls, literally, you know, so happy and excited about something that's happening. But the same piece of information, you tell it to an adult and they're pretty, you know, they're pretty calm about it. Like, yes, okay, it's good. Yes, but I'm not going to go so overly excited like that. So, of course, as we grow and we develop, we become emotionally mature, more emotionally mature. But even as adults, there are some people who are more emotionally mature than others, right? There are some people who are still quick to, to follow everywhere their heart leads them without any restraint. You know, wherever my emotions lead me, that's where I go without kind of tempering that and thinking right through it. The same is true with the mind. Some people um, mentally, maybe like it's 100% the mind and whatever my mind tells me, I do it no matter how cold it is, no matter how, how much it might hurt other people, as long as it's logical, I'll do it without factoring in at all the heart. That's also equally wrong, right? So we need to have both together. That's, that's what I meant um, when I spoke about the emotional maturity. Number two, can you elaborate more on Kyak prayers? Uh, what's its uh, purpose and why this time of the year? Okay, so, so this is a good question for people who are not familiar with the Coptic calendar, right? Uh, the Coptic calendar is the calendar that we use in the church, okay? Um, it is the calendar of like the ancient Egyptians. Actually, each of these months that we have in the, in the Coptic calendar are actually named after like ancient pharaonic gods, okay? Um, and, and that's the same calendar that kind of we inherited when Egypt became a Christian uh, Orthodox country. They still maintain the original calendar that they had, okay? So the calendar is broken up into uh, 13 months. 12 months are 30 days, you know, like in, in the Gregorian calendar, which is what we use typically, you have some months that are 30 days, some months that are 31 days, and you're, and because, because, you know, you, you try to, you, you try, you try to divide up everything into an equal number of days. Um, but in, in, in the Coptic calendar, every single month is 30 days. Okay. And then you have five days left over. All right. So you have the 13th month is, is five days. So you have 12 months of 30 days exactly. And you have the last month which is a five day. So, so one of these months, okay, which is the month of Kiyak, okay? This month is the month that's immediately prior to the Feast of the Nativity, okay? So when do, does the church celebrate the Feast of the Nativity? It's on the 29th of the month of Kiyak, okay? That is the, the Feast of Nativity. And usually, um, uh, unless it's a leap year, it will land on January 7th, right? So, so this month leading up to January 7th, which is the 29th of Kiak, it is the month leading up to the nativity. And during this time, we are fasting, right? The nativity fast. And we are like preparing ourselves for the feast, okay? And in this month, several things change, okay? In the, in the, in liturgically, okay? Um, there are different seasons of the year, okay? In the church. So for instance, there's the great fast season, uh, uh, there is the, there is the, the Kiak season, right? And each of these seasons 
has a different tune that we use in the church, right? So typically we have what we call the standard tune or the annual tune, but the tune will change according to the season, right? Feasts have a certain certain uh, tune, okay? The, the fasts, like the great fast has a certain tune, actually a tune on the weekdays and a tune on the weekends, it's different, okay? And the month of Kiak also has its own tune. And the idea of these tunes is it helps us to kind of um, associate certain events with the music that we're hearing. So when we begin to hear the music, when we begin to, to sing these hymns, immediately it puts us in a mindset of the season of the year that we are celebrating, okay? So the month of Kiak has its own tune. We call it the Kiak tune, okay? Um, and the actual prayers themselves have different, uh, are, are different. So for instance, uh, the, the tune of the psalm and the psalm response is different. The gospel response that we say after the gospel is different. The praxis response or the response that we say after the reading of the Acts, or actually it's, it's before the reading of the Acts, um, is different, okay? And the biggest change out of all of these differences is what we do in the midnight praises. So midnight praises is the, what we pray on Saturday night before the Sunday liturgy. And the normally the, the praises is, let's say, you know, usually it's like an hour and a half, you know, or an hour and 45 minutes. Okay. Um, and there's certain, there's certain hymns that are chanted. During the month of Kiak, the midnight praises is much, much longer. And actually there's different... Um, there's different ways that it's done. Um, but the way we do it, um, it's maybe about four hours long. Okay. Uh, and, and, uh, we add a whole bunch more hymns. There's more tunes, different things that are, that, that are done. Okay. What is the structure of the midnight praises? Okay. So normally you have what are called four canticles or hoses, right. That are said at the beginning of the midnight praises. And then after that, there's a soli of the day and the theotokeia. That's not everything, but that's just the basic structure. You have four canticles followed by the soli of the day and the theotokeia of the day. Okay. Um, for, for the month of Kiak, there's a lot more solis and a lot more hymns and a lot more expositions and things that are added in between all of these different things. Traditionally, um, and it's still done in some churches, like for those who have uh, like the, the Coptic TV stations, and you can see um, what they do in Egypt. You can watch actually um, some of the, the, the big churches uh, in Egypt that do the all night long kiak praise, okay? And this all night long kiak praise is called sabawarba, which means seven and four, okay? What is seven and four? So as I said, there's four canticles that are chanted Okay, uh, at the beginning of the midnight praises. So this is the four. Okay, the seven represents what? There are seven days of the week. Okay, if you were to pray the midnight praise, which you could pray it on any night, okay, of the week, you would say um, the soli that corresponds to that day and the theotokeia of that day. And every single day has a different theotokeia. Okay, so there's a Monday theotokeia, Tuesday theotokeia, Wednesday, so on, right? The one we say on Saturday night is the Sunday Theotokeia because the, the Saturday night prayers is like part of the Sunday, okay? So, so when, when these churches do the seven and four prayer version of the Kiak Midnight Praises, essentially they say all seven Theotokeias as though we are taking all the midnight prayers that we would have prayed every day of the week, 
But because we don't pray it every day of the week, we're only praying it on Saturday night. It's essentially taking everything that would have been prayed the entire week and praying it all together on one night. And that's why it's like an all-night vigil. It lasts very long. We don't do that, right? We we are just doing the Sunday Theotokeia and this the prayers that we prayed on Sunday, which is still very long. Okay. Most of the hymns that are that are prayed, um, whether it be in midnight praises or the readings that are read in the gospel. So like the the gospel that we read um, on the four weeks of the month of Kiak is the entirety of Luke chapter one. That's all speaking about like the Annunciation of St. John the Baptist, the Annunciation of Christ, St. Mary visiting uh, uh, her cousin Elizabeth, like at the birth of, of St. John the Baptist. All these things are all focusing on the beginning part of Christ's ministry, which includes the incarnation, the birth of St. John the Baptist, the ministry of St. John the Baptist, and so on. Okay, So um, uh, all the readings are about this. Um, and a lot of the responses and a lot of the, the, the prayers are focusing on uh, St. Mary as being the Theotokos, right? And we focus a lot on her. And there are a lot of hymns that are chanted for, for her. Um, actually, some people refer to Kiak as the Mary month, right? Because we're focusing a lot on St. Mary in this month because um, of the Annunciation of Christ and leading up to the birth of Christ, which we celebrate on the 29th of Kiak, which again is the Feast of the Nativity. So um, definitely um, anyone who has attended the Kiak Midnight Prayers uh, praises, um, you, you definitely can see that it's different and has a different flavor to it and the tunes are different and some of the very beautiful hymns are in the church that are never chanted any other time of the year um, are only chanted during this month. Uh, so it's a big blessing to attend and encourage everyone to come and at least attend even if it's for a short time, at least one of the weeks to come and, 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 and see what is it that we are praying um, in the church during this month. Number three, if we run out of a saint oil, can we add oil or can we give it to a priest and ask him to refill it or what can we do? So there are several kinds of oil in the church. So just to explain what's happening with the oil. Okay, there are several kinds of oil in the church. Um, the most holy oil that's used actually for consecration and it's used for confirmation um, is the Myrun oil. Okay, This Myrun oil is uh, originally, so what, what is the story behind it? So um, in, in, in the book of Acts, in the early church, we read about how um, whenever the apostles were to ordain Okay, um, they were to, to lay hands or whenever that they were to baptize and confirm someone, they would lay hands on them and they would receive the Holy Spirit. So in the early days, the idea of the laying of hands is what brought the Holy Spirit down for some purpose. Right. Like in Acts chapter 19, um, St. Paul meets some believers that had not yet been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and had not yet been confirmed and received the Holy Spirit. So he baptized them and he laid hands on them. And then they received the Holy Spirit, right? And this was a gift that was given to the apostles. This is part of the, the, the function of the bishop, the priesthood for the, for the, for the apostles and, and the bishops after them, that they have this gift of the laying of hands. The laying of hands is used today in like, for instance, the ordination of a priest, uh, the bishop would lay hands on him. Um, so, so that's how it was done. At the time, 
as the Christians began to multiply and increase in number and the church began to spread very quickly in different parts of the world, um, there was no longer enough apostles or bishops to be able to, um, you know, go and, and confirm all of these Christians, right? Because each person after they're baptized, they are confirmed, right? And so you would need to lay hands on every single person who is coming to the faith. And so there wasn't enough bishops. So the church decided that it was going to create this oil, okay, called the Myrun oil by praying on it and distributing it to the priests, okay, in the various places so that they could anoint the people with oil as a substitute for the laying of hands directly by the bishop. So what they did is they took some of the spices that was used to anoint the body of Christ at his burial, and they mixed it with oil, and they distributed this oil. Every time throughout history, when this oil uh, would be, would start to diminish, they would start to run out of it, they would make a new batch of oil and mix in the previous batch. So, so actually the Myrun oil that we have in the church today that we use for consecration and we use for confirmation actually has traces of the spices that were used to anoint the body of Christ in it. Okay, This is the holiest oil. This is not the oil that people have. This is not distributed to the people. This is kept in the church and only used by the priest. Okay? The, the oil, there's a second level of oil which, which is, is, is the called the oil of joy, okay? Or the Galileon oil, okay? This is another oil that's used in various prayers. It's also used during baptism and, uh, and, and uh, the confirmation, okay? Um, before the Myrun oil is used. And actually in the, in the prayer uh, rite that the, uh, the bishops use to pray on the oil to make it to be the Myrun oil, um, the, the oil of joy is kind of like, uh, it's kind of like uh, you start the prayer. It's a very long prayer. You start the prayer. Um, and then at some point, the oil that's there, some of it is taken out to become the oil of joy, the Galilean oil. And then the remaining oil, they continue to pray on it and it becomes the Myrun oil. So these two types of oil are very much used for in, in the church for confirmation, okay? And for consecration of things. But the Myrun primarily then you have what we call the simple oil or the oil of the catechumens. This is not a type of oil that's used liturgically. Um, I mean, we, we do use it for some things, but it's not, it's something that anyone can have. It's not something that is limited to the usage of by the priesthood, okay? Um, and the, the, the oil comes from different places. So um, for instance, there is a prayer that's prayed uh, on the vigil of the apocalypse. So um, on Bright Saturday, Bright Saturday is the day after Good Friday and the day before the Feast of the Resurrection. So on Good Friday at night, we come to the church and we have an all-night vigil that's called the Vigil of the Apocalypse all throughout the, the morning of Bright Saturday, and we have a liturgy at the end. One of the, uh, one of the things that's done during this night is that there are prayers that are said um, and, and the there's oil that we pray on, and this oil becomes what we call the oil of the apocalypse, which is a type of simple oil. This oil, everyone gets anointed with it, and people can actually take some of this oil uh, with them uh, if, if, if they ask, um, you know, and there is enough. I mean, typically we don't have so much, but this is a kind of oil that's used, um, like people can have it in their homes and so on. Also, another type of simple oil that's used is um, for instance, if in Egypt there's, you know, miracles that happen, like where a particular icon um, is dripping oil and they take that oil and they distribute it to the people, that also can be a type of simple oil. 
um, that's used. So it's like a holy oil that's prayed on, um, but it's not liturgically used like the oil of joy in the Myrun only by the priest. It can be used by others as well. The last type of oil I'm going to mention is the oil of the unction of the sick. Okay. This type of oil is mentioned in the epistle of James, where he speaks about how when someone is sick, they can ask the priests of the church to come and to anoint them for, uh, with oil for a healing. Okay. So we have a special rite. It's seven prayers that are prayed um, either in the church or in some cases, if a person cannot come to church because they're ill, can be prayed in their home uh, where uh, there's these seven prayers that are prayed on oil and it becomes this uh, unction of the sick oil, which is um, used for the healing of the sick. This again is a sacrament. Unction of the sick is a sacrament. So this oil cannot be used by anyone. It can only be used for the, by, by the priest to anoint the people with it, okay? Um, so uh, the oil that you're speaking about here in this question is the simple oil, which can be obtained um, from different places. Uh, some, some, some people who go to Egypt and they bring back some of this oil or some priests might have it um, to, to, to kind of distribute to the people. Number four, uh, I've been hearing a lot of pros and cons about the COVID-19 vaccine. Does the church have a stand on it? I mean, the bottom line is no, the church does not have an official stance. I mean, this is the, the church, the church's role is one of, you know, speaking about the spiritual life of people, the salvation of people. This is more of a medical question. Um, and so we don't, we don't take any official stance. Of course, everybody has an opinion, um, but I'm not going to discuss that just because I don't want you to get confused. Uh, I, I, there, there is no official stance um, of the church about, about this. Number five, why are we allowed to eat seafood during a level two fast? So let's discuss uh, what the fasts are, why we eat what we eat in the fast, um, and how, how, what did God intend for us to eat, okay? Um, so if you look at the, the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2, back at the very beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, he created humankind, right? Um, what is it that he allowed us to eat? So it says in Genesis 2.16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, right? So what is it that they were to eat in the garden? They were to eat just of the trees. They were to eat fruit, right? The fruit of the trees, Right? They were completely uh, vegan, right? This is the this is the way that God, you know, when He created us, when He made us to be. Okay, it is only after the flood, okay, that God allowed man to eat animals. He says this in Genesis nine verse three: uh, "Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs." So just as you were eating like the fruits and vegetables before, now I am allowing you. To eat the animals okay so this um, idea of eating meat actually happened after the fall okay in Ezekiel chapter 4 we read God's instructions to Ezekiel um, on what to eat and how much he can eat and drink during fasting times okay that God had asked him to observe so God had asked him to observe a very specific fast and in this fast 
all the ingredients um, were vegetarian ingredients, wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. So this is what's mentioned, okay? And, and the amount that he could eat and the amount that he could drink was also regulated by God, okay? So we consider that um, like when God is, 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 first of all, when God created us, right, in an original uncorrupted state, what he wanted us to eat was of the vegetables, okay, and the fruits. And when God asked Ezekiel to fast, he asked him also to eat a vegetarian diet, okay? So when we think about how is it that we will fast, we, we, we say, well, our fasting should um, be toward like a return to the original diet that God intended for us to eat, just as God intended, it to be, intended us to be sinless, God did not intend for us to fall. God did not intend the world to be how it is today in this fallen state that it's in. So as a type of fast, right, that we are trying to, um, you know, re be restored to the original image that God created us in, we say, okay, I'm going to only eat the foods that were sanctioned by God from the beginning, okay? And we consider that fasting, it's, it's a time of cleansing and it's a time to like be purified, right, and, and repent. So abstaining from animals is a way for us to go back to God's like intended design before sin entered into the world. Um, so, so originally in the church, all the fasts were uh, abstinence from all animal products, right? Completely vegan. Okay, that's the way the, the, the fasts were. But as a concession for pastoral reasons um, on the people, because it was difficult for people to fast, 100% vegan without anything else. A lot of the fasts there was allowed in them, like uh, they gave the permission to uh, eat seafood. Okay, um, this is like uh, a concession. So you still cannot eat like meat and chicken. Okay, but seafood would be allowed. the The only times where seafood is not allowed, okay, is on Wednesdays and Fridays because we fast Wednesdays and Fridays. Um, Wednesdays, we commemorate the day that Judas betrayed Christ. So we fast uh, what's called the level one fast, which is a vegan without seafood. Okay. Fridays, we commemorate the crucifixion of Christ. Okay. Jonah's fast, which is right before the great fast and the great fast itself. And, um, and other days that we call the Baramon days. Uh, those days, we have the strict fast of the level one fast without any seafood. But all the other fasts of the year, for, for as a concession for pastoral reasons, we allow um, the seafood. And again, as I've said before, um, fasting, there is a general rule of fasting for everyone, but each person is different. So with the guidance of your father of confession, he can set for you a good fasting rule that is, um, that is tailored for your level and what you're able to do. So it's better to fast even if it's only one day a week, but with the guidance of your father of confession, then to say this fasting is too difficult, so I'm not even gonna try, right? So please, if you have not begun fasting, all right, because we are currently in the nativity fast, please speak to your father of confession so that he can help and motivate you to begin your fast. Number six, is there such a thing as a jinx? We have a friend who will call once every few months and immediately we will have a streak of unfortunate luck. Is this all in our head and what kind of action should we take? 
So this idea of the jinx is a superstition. Okay, this this idea is a superstition. Um, there, there's many types of superstitions where people believe that some certain thing happens in connection with something else that's unrelated. The same is true with the concept of luck, right? Like I believe that having a certain object with me brings me luck, right? Um, these are these are superstitions, and we don't believe in that. Okay, we do believe that there is evil. We do believe that 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 even evil magic and the occult and witchcraft exist. We do we do definitely believe that. And actually, God condemns these practices in Deuteronomy 18. He says, "There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer." or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells or a medium or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead, right? So all those things were practiced at that time, and all those things were condemned by God, right? Because they, they, they draw upon like the, the power of, of Satan in order to do those things, okay? So there's definitely real evil, okay? And there's definitely the real concept of the occult and the real concept of spells and all those. The, yes, there, there, that does exist. Okay. And it's possible, yes, for people to become demon possessed. Okay. But far more common, okay, that we find in, in our normal day to day life is coincidences. Or we find people who are charlatans and entertainers who are pretending to do something. Like when you speak about people who are like magicians, right? Most of the time, those people are not actually using magic in the real sense. They are just doing tricks, right? They, they practice something and they know how to kind of distract you into not noticing or, or realizing what they're doing. And so it's a trick, okay? But that doesn't take away from the fact that there is real evil. But the idea that um, a person calls me on the phone and then after that something happens, I don't, cons I don't think that is falling under the umbrella of the occult or, or, or anything like that. In the end, you know, even though, you know, witches and sorcerers and these people exist, but we believe that God protects us from evil, right? Imagine the devil, if he was not restricted or restrained, what he would do, right? Like, like he is very powerful, right? If God did not put any kind of limit on him, what is it that he would do? He would, he would go crazy. This is even why um, in the book of Job, you know, we, we, we hear about this very enlightening conversation, very interesting conversation that God had with Satan at the very beginning of the book, okay? And in this, Satan is, you know, essentially wanting permission to go and to harm Job and to, to, to make Job suffer. And God allowed it, but he said, but do not touch the man, meaning do not kill him, right? There was a limit that was put on Satan. And certainly now, right, when we speak about Satan, um, the book of Revelation speaks about the millennial kingdom. This is a, a, a thousand years, which is symbolic. It's not literally a thousand years, but as the millennial reign of Christ, this is where the devil is bound, right? In the sense that God is bound, binding him so that he does not have free reign to do as he wishes. Because if he were given free reign by God to do as he wishes, then he would have, he would destroy, you know, like, like he would be much more powerful, um, than, than, than he is because God would allow that. Right now, he, God is not allowing him, okay? So, so while, yes, there is such a thing as evil um, and there's such a thing as magic, but most of the time, and a lot of the things that we experience in life 
um, is, 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 is just coincidences, right? There's a lot of coincidence things that happen. Um, someone is saying, could the devil try to reinforce our fear of jinx by causing some things to happen that would reinforce what we believe? The devil is very crafty. Um, he can he can do a lot, all kinds of things, right? Uh, and and he and, and he wants us to be afraid, and he wants us to be superstitious, and he wants us to doubt, and he wants us to um, focus on the wrong things. So 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 definitely, the devil does things to deceive us, right? Um, but I shouldn't think that uh, having a certain item with me or, 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 or doing certain things is somehow like the, these, these things that, you know, people do out of superstitions is going to, is going to help us. In the end, our help comes from God. Our trust should be in God. And, and we trust that God is the one protecting us. Even if these external superficial things might happen in our life. But the true thing that really matters the most is that our souls are, are safe, that we are in the hands of God the Father, and that we are protected by him, and that nobody can touch us, nobody can take us from his hand, right? The devil can do nothing to harm us, right? Because we are the children of God, and that is what should bring us comfort. When my father of confession asks me to do something for my spiritual benefit, I don't always know how whatever practice he gives would benefit me. How do I discern when to ask about the reason why he gives me specific practice and when to just obey without questioning? And if I am curious to know, yet I don't. And if I am curious to know, yet I don't mind obeying if that's best, how can I express that? Um, so the idea of counsel, right? Re receiving counsel in Proverbs 19.20, it says, listen to counsel and receive instruction that you, you're, that you may be wise in your latter days, right? The Bible is all full of the teaching that we should be submitting ourselves to wise counsel, okay? And the reason for that goes back to something that I said earlier when we were talking about the emotional maturity that in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it, right? Um, I am often blinded by myself, and I don't see. And sometimes maybe I don't have experience dealing with certain situations that other people do have experience dealing with. You know, when, when you give guidance to someone who is inexperienced, they might interpret, like, like, like if somebody is very experienced in the world, right, and they've gone through a lot of things and they're wise. When that person gives advice to someone who is yet unexperienced and who lacks that wisdom, right, that person who is inexperienced doesn't understand the depth of understanding or the knowledge that the old that the wiser person has, right? Because they themselves are like operating in a fog. Like they don't they don't see the situation around them rightly, right? Their mind has not yet experienced enough in order to know what the pitfalls are, what the right thing to do is, and so on. And they don't realize that what they're going through, what they're experiencing, is actually something very normal and very common, right? For someone who has yet to maybe grow wiser to, to, to experience more, okay, in their life. So when that person receives some instruction that doesn't make sense to them, right, um, that's actually very common, right? Actually, a person who often goes to get counseling, it's because they trust that the person who they're getting counseling from understands better than they do. 
And because they themselves don't have that understanding, maybe the thing they're being asked to do doesn't really make sense to them because they have yet to experience why they need to take that course of action. Okay, so there's nothing wrong with asking question. Why are you asking me to do this? What do you expect to have? What's going to happen when I do this? And so on. Okay, but asking a question and arguing are not the same thing. Okay, so so it's okay for us to ask a question. Okay. Um, but even if I'm not convinced of the answer or I don't understand how I will benefit, okay, it doesn't mean that there is no benefit. And because like that person hasn't experienced this before, maybe there is no answer that will be sufficient. There will be no answer to, to, to describe or explain. Like I would give you like, a, you know, like a very crude example. If there is a very young child, okay, who doesn't understand the idea that Roads are places where cars drive and that cars can be dangerous. And if you jump out into the street, then you could get hit by a car. Okay. For a child, they don't understand the concept of a road. They don't understand the concept of a car. They don't understand the concept of getting hurt. They don't understand the concept of death. They don't understand any of those concepts. Right. So when an, when an adult, like when a parent tells the child, don't run into the street. Okay. They have to just accept that at face value. Okay, I'm not. I can't. I can't run into the street. Why? I don't understand why. Because you're going to get hurt. Why? Why am I going to get hurt? Right. So asking a question is fine, but even if you don't understand the answer, even if it doesn't make sense to you in the bigger picture of things, it doesn't mean that the advice is wrong. Okay, and it doesn't mean that you know um, I, I should keep asking until I'm convinced. Because perhaps they, I will never be convinced. Perhaps I don't know yet, yet enough in order to be convinced, okay? So the idea of submission, when Christ speaks about in discipleship, when he speaks about submission, this was a topic that's discussed so much like by the early church fathers. And we see examples of like saints who submit themselves to their elders, right? Even in a way that for us as modern people look at and see, well, this is like, like an amazing amount of submission, like a, a, a submission beyond what we could fathom, you know, that we could even do, right? Um, but we see that submission and that submission is necessary for discipleship again, because the heart is deceitful. I don't know. And I don't know myself. So if someone sees me more objectively than I see myself and they see that I have a certain weakness or they see that I'm, I'm the path that I'm walking is going to lead me to trouble, or they see that something is beneficial for me because maybe I have a blind spot and I don't know what I'm lacking or what's wrong. Right. But maybe they see it. Okay. So they give me guidance and counsel, right, for my benefit. I benefit if I listen and, and apply what they are saying, okay? Sometimes we, we think that our reason for asking questions is because we don't understand. But a lot of times it's actually because we are resisting, right? Because if I ask a question and I don't, and I, you know, and I, and I get an answer, but that answer is not satisfying to me, it's likely because I just don't, I don't, I don't, I, I just have to trust and believe. Like maybe, maybe that answer is not satisfying because I don't yet know enough in order to, um, to realize why I'm being asked to do a certain thing. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't think for ourselves. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't, uh, you know, apply our, our minds and not just accept things blindly. I'm not trying to say that at all. Um, but at the same time, in certain areas, we have blind spots and we should just trust that maybe somebody knows better than I do. We do the same thing, for instance, when we go to a doctor, right? Like when I have a pain in my body or I have something that's wrong with me, I go to the doctor and the doctor does a bunch of stuff I don't understand, 
they get a bunch of equipment out. They, they, they do all kinds of things. They examine me in ways I wouldn't be able to do for myself. And they know things about my body that I don't know myself and names of things and organs and functions and all kinds of stuff. And then based on that, they write me some medication. And I don't know what that medication does. I can't even pronounce the name of the medication usually. Um, and they tell me to go with this medication and to take it a certain number of times. And then that should clear up whatever problem I have. I don't have any understanding of any of that, right? And yet I just trust that that doctor is a doctor. He knows what he's talking about, that he studied to understand this concept. So when it comes to the spiritual disease, just like the physical disease, when it comes to the spiritual disease and my spiritual doctor, he comes and he tells me, here's what you need to do because here is your problem. One, two, three, four. Okay. Yes, I can ask a question just like I can ask a question from a physical doctor. So tell me exactly what's wrong. And he might be able to, you know, give me a, a rough idea of what's wrong. But when you come to the science, when you come to like the, 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 the fundamentals, I don't understand exactly what's happening in my body. I don't understand exactly how it works. I don't understand how that medicine I'm going to take works, but I, I trust that it should work. Something good should come up, should come out of this. As long as I am faithful in taking the medicine and doing the things that I've been asked to do. So the same is true with the spiritual disease. When, when I have some problem and I go to my father confession and he sees, you know, that, that this is an issue that I have. And it's something that he sees often. It's not something that's foreign to him. It's not something that he, this is the first time he's ever experienced this. It's something he understands pretty well. And he says, I think you need to do such and such. And you shouldn't do such and such. Sure, ask questions. But in the end, don't be surprised if you don't understand. Don't be worried that you don't understand because in so many aspects of our life, otherwise, we do things because we trust, not because we have full understanding. And if I keep asking and resisting, this amounts more to argument rather than simply accepting, you know, maybe what's best for me. Also, what's best for me um, often is not comfortable. Right, because that's actually one of the reasons I have a problem is because the thing that's right is not comfortable. That's why I avoid it. You know, like when you go to the doctor and he tells you, you need to stop doing X, Y, Z. And usually that X, Y, Z is something that we enjoy. It's something that's, it's my lifestyle. It's the way I want to live my life. That's why I do that. But if that thing is causing me the problem and he tells me to stop it, that's uncomfortable for me. I don't want to do that, right? And maybe we try to find reasons why um, we don't think that's right. We don't think that's a good idea, right? We resist what he's telling us because we really don't want to stop doing the thing he's asking us to do, okay? And the same is true with the spiritual. Maybe I have habit. Maybe I have a, a thought process. Maybe I have something, the way that I live, the way that I think, the way that I do things that's actually flawed, that's causing me problems, that's hurting my relationships with others, that's causing me to fall into sin, that's, that's, that's keeping me back in some way, and my father confession sees that. Maybe I don't see it, but he sees it. And he tells me, you need to practice such and such. You need to stop doing this. You need to react a different way than you're reacting. And it's not comfortable for me to do that because that's not my natural way. That's not what naturally would have come to my mind because I don't know or realize or understand the problem that I actually have, but he sees it. This is why, again, back to the idea of submission is important. Again, I can ask questions, but I shouldn't resist. Number eight, I'm convinced that judging is bad and that I am a sinner like the people that I feel tempted to judge. Yet I still do judge. How can I stop judging? Um, 
So here's a few points, okay? Whenever I have the temptation to judge, number one, remind yourself of your sins and weaknesses. Whenever I look at someone and I'm about to judge them, I should pause, remind myself of my own sins and weaknesses. Usually when we judge others, we are judging what is visible and apparent, right? Like I'm not judging people for their thoughts because I don't know their thoughts, but I judge people according to what I see. And certain sins are very visible and apparent. Certain sins are easy for me to identify in them quickly because they are so obvious, right? But maybe my weaknesses, okay, are not as obvious, but they are hidden and not exposed to the world. And maybe I do a good job of hiding them, okay? But my sins are no less damaging. My sins are no less awful than those visible sins, even though they might be hidden, right? Because in the end, we are judged by God. We're not judged by other people, right? So imagine your sins that are hidden, right? Imagine them being exposed for everyone to see, right? Imagine that everything that we think and everything that we do in private and everything that we do when, when you know, the, there's, there's nobody that we're trying to impress around us, okay? Imagine that all of those sins suddenly came to the surface and they were evident and apparent to every single person around us. How would we feel about ourselves, right? And how would people react to us? Maybe there would be people who respect us today that would change their view of us altogether, right? Because our weaknesses are now known. So every time we have a chance to judge another, imagine that everything about us is visible. How would we be able to judge? Like, would I be able to judge another person as being bad? I can judge the action. You know, somebody does something wrong, that's wrong. I should judge it in myself as well. When I do wrong, that's wrong. I judge it against the word of God. But to judge a person means I feel that I'm better than them, right? And I think if we do this exercise and we really see, okay, if all of my sins became apparent, would I really feel better than anyone? Is there anyone that I would point to and say, you know what, I'm better than you? after everything that we do wrong becomes apparent? I don't think so. We have to really remind ourselves of that. Also, number two, we remind ourselves of God's mercy, right? Because even if a person has weaknesses and sins and things that they do, right? How much does God forgive? And how much has God forgiven us, right? Contemplate on the parable of the unforgiving servant, right? This was the servant who owed 10,000 talents to his master. And because he could not repay his master, his master forgave him the debt. But then this servant, he went to his fellow servant who owed him very little money in comparison, and he asked for his money. And when that other servant couldn't pay, he had him uh, thrown into prison because he couldn't pay, right? So he didn't learn the idea of mercy, that even though his master was merciful to him, he was not merciful to his fellow servant. And when the master heard that this happened, he became furious and he said, cast this servant into prison and he will not come out until he has paid every last penny, right? So what is this teaching us? Christ is the one saying this parable, right? He's saying, be merciful to others just as I've been merciful to you, okay? So, so whenever we are um, struggling with unforgiveness, when we are struggling with judgment on other people, right? We should remember how much God has had mercy on me. Again, he covers my sin. He has not allowed my sin to be exposed and he forgives me my sin. Even the sins that I commit again and again and again and again, right? He covers me. So how can I point to another person and, 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 and treat them as though they are the worst sinners in the world 
and that I am better than you, right? No, the only reason that I'm here is because God has mercy on me and allows me to be here, not because I deserve, okay? Um, a third point to keep in mind is that not judging a person does not mean that we agree with them or we like them, okay? So I can disagree with what a person has done, and I can even consider that action to be a sin, okay? Um, I even might not feel comfortable with that person because of the lifestyle that they choose to lead, okay? But at no time should I feel that I'm better than them, right? Maybe in the eyes of God, that person is actually more righteous than me. Why? Because God judges based on what we're given. You know, he says to, to him, much is given, much will be required, which means what? To the one who has received little, less will be required. So, so maybe for me and the standard that God has given me and my understanding about himself and the word of God and the, the way that I, you know, I, I have the benefit of the church, I have the benefit of the sermons, I have benefit of reading the Bible, I have benefit of knowledge and understanding and truth, that God is going to place such a standard for me that he's going to ask me to live up to that standard. But maybe to some of these people that I am judging, and again, I don't know their life, and I don't know their history, and I don't know how, how what they've experienced in their life, but maybe for that person, God actually sees that their struggle is greater than my struggle. Even though they are committing more sins, even though they are, and their sins are apparent and visible, right? But maybe in the eyes of God, that person is actually struggling more than someone like me, right? So I can't even objectively look at what it is that they're doing and make any judgment um, about them at all, right? St. Paul, you know, when he was speaking about himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So when he looked at himself objectively and honestly and, and, and without, without self-deception, okay, he saw that he is the chief of sinners, St. Paul. I mean, this is the one who we venerate. This is the one who we refer to as a saint. This is the one who established, you know, so much of the church in Europe and Asia. This is, this is the one who we name churches after him. This is the one who performed miracles, right? This is the one who had a vision of heaven. He, he looked at himself and what did he see? He saw that he was the chief of sinners, right? So if that's the way he sees himself, how is it that we should see ourselves, you know? And how is it that we could judge another person if we truly see ourselves this way? And we are nowhere near him. We are nowhere near the level of St. Paul, okay? The fourth point is even if I do not see my own sin, we should not conclude that it is not there. For instance, I cannot look at myself and just because I don't find anything specific, right? Again, I have to believe that I can be deceiving myself. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's so easy for me to deceive. And actually, St. Paul also, he felt the same. In 1 Corinthians 4, he says, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord, right? Meaning, when I look at myself, I don't necessarily see something that is a big problem that I need to fix. Like, I don't see a vice in me that I need to fix. But just because I don't see it, I'm not justified in that. God is the judge. God is the one who knows me. I don't know myself. Just because I look at myself, again, we cannot judge others. We cannot even look at, this is why he says I cannot even judge myself. We cannot judge ourselves, right? Because we don't even fully understand ourselves. When, we, when I look at myself, I don't see clearly. Right? I don't see myself as I am. So perhaps I'm blinded and cannot see my sin. Right, Just like others 
the ones that I am judging, maybe they are also blinded and don't see their own sin, right? Maybe they don't change because they don't realize that they have a problem, okay? Or maybe they do realize they have a problem. They've been struggling with it for years, but yet it's still a weakness for them. So in every way, you know, we have no right, we have no reason to judge anyone. I cannot claim that I am better than anyone. I, I, I have to always remind myself of God's mercy, right? Because he has, has mercy on me. And, and just as in the parable, if I choose not to have mercy on others, then God will not have mercy on me either, which is the scariest part. And this is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. You know, we say we ask God to forgive us our, our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Okay. But if I do not forgive, okay, if I if I am filled with judgment in my heart, then how is it that God will deal with me? Right. And this is this is not what we want for sure. Um, okay, this is a stopping point for today. Um, thank you everybody for joining. Let's just conclude in a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Thank you, God, for this day. Grant us your peace in all things, and teach us to be obedient, to follow you, to submit ourselves to you and to your instruction. Help us, O God, to serve you according to your will, and lead us to your kingdom. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Have a good night. God bless. Thank you.